Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. We are very glad to be back again, and I am joined once again by my irritatingly infamous partner in crime, Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing fine, Mark. Good morning. You sound extremely tired today. Terrib- yeah, terrible been a, tired. It's been a long week. I'm also on my, uh, wireless, my, head, my wireless headset, so uh, this sounds a little bit teeny, unfortunately. Uh, decided my uh, USB one decided to die in transit today, just for kicks. So um, that's always entertaining, but uh, otherwise so, I'm kicking along. Is it actually physically broken, your other headset? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It probably still works, but I'd have to like physically hold it to my head, and that would be really irritating, so I can't be bothered. Yeah, I, I get that. That's fine. Yeah, so, um, yeah, lots of fun. So what are we doing today? Uh, sitting around, just complaining about stuff. Pretty usual things, really. Ah, uh, Okay. Um, it's episode 25. It's like a mini anniversary. It is actually. That's very cool. I didn't realize that till today. Yeah, it's our, what do you call it if you're married for 25 years? It's like your... Uh, the diamond or something? Is it silver? I don't know. It depends which country you're in, actually. Because American and English have very different um, very different uh, traditions that way. Oh, okay. I didn't uh, know that. Here we go. Let's see what Wikipedia says. Depending, uh, 25 years uh, is the quadrancentennial uh, or silver jubilee. Yes, yeah, sil- like silver. silver ju- yeah, in Germany it would be called your silver wedding anniversary as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Fun, fun. Um, before we get into the you know usual startup business of like thing of the day and all that other stuff, um, we've got a guest today. We do. Yeah, we do. Our guest is one of our speakers from CF Objective. Who would have thought? Indeed. Do you want to introduce yourself, dear guest, Anonymous? <laughs> sure, why not? Hey, my name is uh, Chris Korsmo, and I'm a developer in the Seattle area. And I'm a member of the Seattle ColdFusion user group, and try to get to that as much as I can. My schedule is a little crazy sometimes, so don't get that as much as I'd like to, but i uh, really excited to be coming down to CF, CF Objective, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. My first time down in Australia, so it's going to be pretty pretty epic. Yeah, that should be really cool, actually. And I'm pretty sure you will enjoy it for a variety of reasons, you know. And um, the, We'll come back to that schedule comment a bit later, I think, when we talk a bit about yourself and what you're doing. Because I kind of know why you have a crazy schedule, but a lot of our listeners probably don't and will be quite surprised i assume um so let's just have a look at the thing of the day basically can i start mark sure go right ahead i've got three basically one is um it's well it would be buddy holly's birthday today oh yeah i saw that one too that's a good um, one let me just click he would turn 78 i think if he was still alive and then uh, the other two things are more like events in general. Four years ago, on the day, um, the Federal Bank took over Fannie Mae and F- Freddie Mac, and the whole global financial crisis started. And the, uh. the other thing I found um, today is basically um, the... Oh, yeah, my God. What, what anniversary is it? 79... Uh, the 91st anniversary of Miss America, the, oh, the beauty point. pageant, beauty contest. She probably doesn't look as good as she used to, though. 
Yeah, I would think that. I'm, I wonder if she's still alive, actually, the winner from then. Probably not. That's good. And what have I got here? I've got um, the Boxer Rebellion ended today in 1901. Ah, okay. She's the famous uh, rebellion in China by the people who thought that martial arts and spiritual learning would stop bullets. Didn't end up working out so well for them. Uh, <laughs> I had another one. Birth of Easy E today. Uh, you already took my buddy Holly one. And I had one other one. Uh, Nazi Germany began the first blitz of London today, 1940. Ooh, out. Yeah. So pretty much, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, Brazilian independence as of today, 190th anniversary. So happy Independence Day to Brazil. Mm, cool. Ooh, ooh, no, I just found another one. <laughs> first fully electronic television system is achieved, 1927. It is the 85th anniversary. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm actually done. I'm done. Okay. Do you have anything, Chris? Well, just one, maybe. Uh, back September 6th in 1976, a uh, Soviet pilot landed a Russian MiG fighter in Japan. And, <laughs> well, that it was intentional. He defected uh, to the U.S. He asked for asylum, and he was granted asylum. So. Okay. I thought it was kind of neat. That is quite interesting, yeah. It's quite interesting. Alrighty, cool. So... Quite a few interesting things today, actually, or you know, from our point of view yesterday, if we take into account that we are on the 7th and Chris is still on the 6th of September. Um, so what are we going to talk today? Basically, I think our agenda is we'll have a bit of a chat to Chris about himself and how about his session at CF Objective. Yep. And then um, I just came back from Microsoft TechEd yesterday, yesterday night, oh, yeah. actually. So we're going to talk a little bit about that because I think Microsoft is doing some really interesting things in a few spaces, not in every and any space, every space basically. But, you know, they seem to have realized a few things and I was quite impressed with what they're doing, particularly when it comes to cloud and their Azure offering and also Windows app, uh, Windows 8 app development. So we can have a bit of a chat about that, I think. Cool, sounds good. Cool, and you have something amazing as well, Mark, don't you? Do you amazing. want to talk? Do you want to talk about later? <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk to Chris first. I think that's probably the priority yep. for why we're here today. So, you you mentioned before when you introduced yourself quickly that you are a Confusion developer in Seattle or a web developer in Seattle on a bit of a crazy schedule. Um, do you want to maybe ex explain people briefly? why that is and where that comes from <laughs> yeah well basically it's uh it's because my my main job these days is uh i fly airplanes for a for a major airline here in the u.s and so i didn't start off uh, flying i actually started off with with writing code uh so so the flying thing actually became a second career but one of the one of the great things about coding is it always keeps you very mentally challenged and i like that so I've kept doing it over the years and uh, tried to keep up with, with uh, as much as you can keep up with the technology. As you know, there's always there's always something new, different framework, different language that you want to learn. But uh, I've kept up with it uh, pretty well, and I try to stay active with all that. But uh, my schedule's a little bit crazy because I'm I'm uh, flying a lot, you know. So I, I think it, it must be quite interesting um, to 
combine two professional careers. And I mean, particularly when, you know, from my personal point of view, because I fly as well and I'm doing my, my commercial license now, it is quite interesting um, that we ran into each other because the story how we met is basically from when my wife and I traveled to Hawaii earlier this year, right? And we, we sort of realized that you fly to Hawaii occasionally and then caught up while we were in Hawaii and while you were actually flying a plane there, basically, and had a layover. Yeah. So I think it's quite... I find it quite amazing how you combine, you know, two two quite, well, quite different professional careers. And I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, how, how all that pans out nicely for you, basically. That's really cool. I'm super amazed about that. Well, you know, most of the time it works really well because generally speaking on the layovers, um, we, we get a lot of time and you can, you can choose to do what, what, you know, what you want with the time. And for me, uh, it makes sense to, to kind of double dip, if you will, and, and, and build clients while I'm, while I'm getting paid from the airline as well. Yeah, exactly. uh, and, and it's, it's me time. It's time that I'm going to be away from my family anyway. And the great part about it is when I'm home. I don't write as much code as as, uh, as I do when I'm on the road because obviously my family's going to come first, right? Yeah. So so being on the road is, is quite nice for, for the second career now. So how do you deal with? I mean, I assume your clients are mostly U.S. based, basically. So are they right. are they sort of like understanding that they can't get hold of you every hour of the day whenever they want to, but that you have another schedule? How does that work out? Yeah, generally speaking, um, you know, my, my clients are, uh, my, my clients know what I do for a living, so uh, they're generally pretty understanding with that. Their needs aren't, aren't always time critical. Uh, occasionally they are, and they'll call with a panic. I, I give them my airline schedule, and then they, they'll call in a panic, and I'll get a message between flights. And, and knowing, knowing that sometimes I'll have those kinds of things, you know, I have all the kinds of apps on the iPad and, and on my iPhone and my laptop and stuff, and we're generally pretty connected when we're at an airport anyway. Yeah. So it, if we have something that's critical that I can at least patch for a little bit until I get to the layover, uh, that usually works out really well. And uh, I haven't had any major issues in, in years and years of doing this. So it's been okay. good. So what te technologies are you mainly using for, for development? I mean, you're obviously doing Cold Fusion, but what else around that? Uh, the Cold Fusion? Why, why am I doing Cold Fusion? No, no, what else are you doing besides Cold Fusion when you build like web applications or web? Oh, okay. Um, well, mostly JavaScript, jQuery, um, those kinds of things. And I've been really interested in, in best practices lately. Um, things like automation with, uh, with uh, Jenkins and um, unit testing is, is a big deal for me too. Um, I'm finding that unit testing is saving me a whole lot of trouble. So um, that's, that's kind of a lot of what I want to touch on when, when I speak at the conference, too, is how, how a CF Builder can integrate with these different things and, um, and help you really write code quickly, efficiently, and uh, make it all come together and, and make you look a little bit better. Yeah, that's a very, very valid point, I think. Um, and not enough people are doing unit testing and... Um, automated builds and all that stuff anyway so it's i think it's a you know really really interesting interesting topic and interesting scenario i think mark wanted to say something didn't you no no if i wanted to say something i would have said something oh i thought you you know i heard you like trying to say something <laughs> if 
but yep, yep. I'm maybe good. it was just an acoustic little thing. Um, so your talk at CF Objective will be about efficient coding using CF Builder. And you mentioned already that, you know, part of it is unit testing and things that make you look better and that make you more efficient. What else besides unit testing will you cover? You know, I've, I've been learning a lot about the ins and outs, thanks to like guys like Charlie Earhart about a lot of the keyboard shortcuts, some of the different options that you have for install, some of the different things that you have for code snippets, that um, things like Tailview, little features that that are really big features that maybe everybody's not using. Um, I, I would consider myself an intermediate level developer. Uh, I'm not a beginner, but I'm, I'm definitely not not a power user. Um, and I think that I think that I can take some of the things that I've learned and hopefully hopefully share those with some folks at uh, at CF Objective and and really kind of shed some light on on things that you can be doing that will not only help you out um, but make your code better as well. Okay, so what did you did you use before you switched to Eclipse platform and CF Builder? It was all Dreamweaver. Everything okay. was Dreamweaver. Ooh, interesting. So, yeah, and I'll do some comparisons as well between um, between Dreamweaver and Eclipse and Sublime Text and a couple other editors. You know, too. Like one of the things that's interesting to me is this whole brackets thing, and I want to compare some some likes and dislikes between different different IDEs as well. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be a good talk. I think we'll get a lot of value out of it. Okay, cool. Um, it's, it seems to be quite interesting. Whenever the topic comes to IDEs, a lot of people get really emotional. You know what I mean? It's, it becomes sort of a, a bit of a religion, like, oh, you're using Dreamweaver or XYZ. You are, you know, just a web designer. You're not a you know, proper coder or something like that. And other people say, well, you have to, you know, you, they wouldn't use CF Builder because it's commercial and they just go with CF Eclipse. And... It seems to be, there are so many... Oh, do you want to get into Vim and Emacs? Because we can go there too if you want. Well, I have no problem with, Ema uh, with Emacs, basically. I, um, I use Emacs <laughs> for closure coding, actually. But you have a problem with VI, don't you? Yeah, I think VI is a bit too rudimentary. I mean, you know, <laughs> there, is a, there is a lower threshold. I'm not going below. And... Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so the other people out there get religious about it, and who are they to judge? But when it comes to you or VI, no, no, I'm no, not no, touching that. No, I have oh. no, no, I have no problem people using VI if they want to. I just think for my, for for me, it is just too hard, you know, to get anything done with VI. I can do it on a shell if I have to to change a config file on a Linux box somewhere remotely. Mm -hmm. Fine, mm -hmm. but coding in it, no thanks. I wouldn't do that. Okay. It's just like, yeah, I don't know, just not comfortable enough. What are you coding in these days, Mark? Oh, IntelliJ. Um, yeah, me too, actually. Very embedded IntelliJ across the board. In fact, I'm writing an IntelliJ plugin at the moment. Oh, what for? Um, okay, here we go. <laughs> so, um, oh, geez, how do I even explain this? Um, I started using in my bash shells on Linux uh, a piece of software called Tmux. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tmux is basically it's a windowing tool. Uh, it's a windowing and multiplexing uh, tool for for Bash. So I basically can start splitting screens and run code uh, 
simultaneously multiple screens and also just be able to break apart panes from just new windows and start doing window stuff. But it's got a lot of really neat features in it for um, for being able to send like data to that window, like a particular pane, and then pull pull it out and stuff like that, which is great as well. Um, and what I've also been doing a lot of, because I've been doing a lot of JRuby stuff, um, there's a really nice, um, which is completely tangential to Chris's talk, but it's interesting, so I'll, I'll explain it anyway. There's a really nice piece of software within Ruby called Pry, which is, uh, if anyone's used like an interactive uh, console or an interactive, like an IRB or something like that, or any of those sort of stuff where you can actually write code in your console. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pry actually kind of takes that a little step further in that um, there's a bunch of really cool features in Pry, but what's one of the things that I love is I can write in the middle of my code binding.pry, and then when I run my unit test or even run my web server, it doesn't really make a difference which. It actually stops the code at that point, and I get an interactive console at that point, and I can actually interact with my live running code at that point with all my variables, all my functions. I can add extra things. I can, you know, I can actually run code in there. So I have it's it's basically a REPL for for uh, for um for for Ruby, and it's great. Um, I can actually step debug things as well. It's it's really really powerful. So. A lot of my development now is I will run, I will write like the basic stub of what it is that I want to do, stick a binding.pry in there, and then I basically copy and paste code backwards and forwards between pry and my IDE till I get what it is that I want, mm-hmm. and then I then I finish off my unit test, which is great. But what's annoying is I have to copy and paste, which is really, which is not like a huge step, but it's kind of annoying. So I'm writing a a, a plugin for IntelliJ so that I can basically just highlight a text, hit a hotkey and say, send it to that pane, and it'll execute. So I can basically get real-time results on what it is that I'm coding inside my IDE. So I have all the, the code hinting and stuff in the IDE, even though the code hinting and, and completion in Pry is actually fantastic because it knows about all your variables and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I can basically do multi-line statements and whatnot, highlight, send it to Pry, bring it back out. But anyway, I've just started with it, and it's been, yeah, that's been kind of fun. Writing Java again is really weird now that I've been writing Ruby for ages. And uh, the IntelliJ plugin system is not bad. It's just not the best documentation I've ever seen in my life. So basically, I'm digging through examples and stuff. But um, it's not bad getting there, getting there. So I'm basically, I'm just at the point where I'm building out this menu selector so you can select which pane you want the uh, text to go to before you start copy-pasting. But uh, it's pretty fun. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that about plugin development for, for IntelliJ before that it's kind of hard to get started because the documentation is Yeah, there's no that. Java doc or anything. Yeah. Um, the resources I've found quite useful are, um, I've been using grep code a lot, <coughs> excuse me, uh, which is just a nice way of searching through open source stuff and actually going through it all. Um, there's a bunch of repositories it goes through, and IntelliJ is one of them, and I don't know why that's not listed. Um, just looking through various, I think it does go through, eh, no, I can't find it. Um, but yeah, it's it's that's been handy because you can actually, without having to pull all the source code in for the IntelliJ Community Edition, and then various IntelliJ plugins that are open source have been pretty good. But their samples aren't too bad. I've been using their samples too, and their samples are, are pretty okay. nice. So again, um, Just coming back to CF Builder quickly, Chris, um, how do you run it? Do you run it as a standalone version, or do you run it like as um, a plugin in a larger Eclipse setup? I I run it on one machine as a as a standalone, along with uh, with Flash Builder. 
on this particular machine that I'm on now, I've got I've got Flash Builder run as a plugin, and then it's it's its own standalone as well. So um, that's just how I choose to run it. It works best for me that way. But there there are other reasons to 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 run it as a as a plugin, uh, just as Eclipse, you know, with Eclipse or um, you know, just like see if Eclipse is a, is a plugin for uh, Eclipse. So. Okay. Did you have a play with IntelliJ at any point? You know, I haven't, but that I have I have a copy of IntelliJ, and I had, that's one of the things that's on my list to do before I get down there. Oh, okay. Cool. That's interesting. I think, you know, both platforms, Eclipse and IntelliJ, are, they are similar in, in, a, in a certain way that they provide, like, a Java IDE with a variety mm. of plugin mechanisms, really, and it it seems to me that um, my my main reason for moving basically was because I had the feeling that on a Mac in particular, IntelliJ works better than Eclipse. So I didn't move away from CF Builder really. I pretty much moved away from Eclipse because I had quite a few performance issues with certain features in the Eclipse platform. I think IntelliJ worked better, at least for my use cases, than than Eclipse did, which is kind of a shame, really, because CF Builder gives you so many quite nice features and really tight CF integration that IntelliJ doesn't have. I mean, yet, maybe maybe it will never have integration to that, that point. But in, for example, I mean, one example that I'm, really really missing is um, the option to write CF Builder plugins in CFML you know you just can't do that in IntelliJ obviously. oh really no how would you do that well, well, well no I'm saying no no I'm saying you miss it yeah because sometimes I have you know a few little use cases where I thought oh it would be just so easy to you know write a little plugin for CF Builder in CFML now mm. to fix that in my IDE but I just can't because you know, I would have to investigate the plugin mechanism of IntelliJ first before I could, you know, achieve sure. something something similar. Actually, least. not too bad. The plugin mechanism. I'm I'm, I'm going to skip more into it. I think. Mm, okay. But I hear I hear what you're saying. It's you're probably more comfortable in in CF just because you know the the API. If the documentation was better for the IntelliJ IDE, you probably wouldn't be too worried, would you? Yeah, probably not. To be honest, yeah. Um, when it comes to CF Builder, what other plugins do you use, Chris? Um, I use the, the Git repository plugin, which I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Tim Cunningham, he, he put, put out some information on setting that up, and, and he, he did a great job with that. And so, you know, if, if you're a typical Windows user like I am, um, you like some, some of your, you know... Um, The, the command line isn't isn't always the easiest thing for you. Okay, I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so I like my I like my GUI. I like that. Um, and for for just basic in and out, you know, cloning repository that kind of thing, it's it's really slick. It takes it right into right into uh, CF Builder for you. So it's good. Yeah, you're gonna have to go to the command line for certain things, but um, it, it's a it's a nice plugin. Um, so that's that's the primary one too, and then there's also a Jenkins plugin that I'm using, and I'll I'll kind of show those ones off. Okay, what what is the Jenkins plugin doing in Eclipse? Is it basically allowing you to um, trigger certain build processes from there, or? Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly, and it's it's pretty capable. 
Okay, cool. That should be interesting, I think. Um, yeah, with with Git, it's or with any of those, you know, distributed version control systems, it's quite interesting. I found when I when I was using Eclipse, I used the Eclipse Git plugin, eGit or something. Yeah, what's yep, called? That's it. Yep, that's yeah. it. And at the time, I didn't like it that much, so I basically went back to the command line. And I think what you said is, you know, like as a Windows user people you know don't use the command line that much and that often i think part of the problem is that the command line in windows is particularly bad or at least in you know like today's windows basically and that you you know it's not even close to a proper unix or os x shell um like bash or k shell or whatever you want to use basically because the functionality in the windows command prompt is so limited right but, you know, what I find is Git Bash and eGit together. You know, Git Bash is going to give you everything that you need. And eGit gets you in and out of most of your situations. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know how long ago you, you were using that, but I find that it's, it's actually quite capable. Okay. For, yeah, it was prob probably two years ago when I stopped using eGit and then made the, made the switch over to IntelliJ at some point. Mm. Yeah, and and probably I think you would find that if you went back today, it's been polished a little bit more. Is it yeah. still really slow? I don't know, the last time no, I touched I it, which was, which was probably a year ago, like I'd make changes in Bash and it would take forever to come back. Uh, I don't know. That could be that's kind of a relative term too. So I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't. Fair enough. I don't find it slow at all. Okay, maybe they fixed it. it I, literally, I haven't touched Eclipse in uh, well over a year, probably. So. Yeah, I think I think it always depends on your configuration, right? If I mean, it might be different when you work on your local file system, but I always mapped file systems via Samba into into my Eclipse setup from a virtual machine. Yeah, usually. I've got stuff like and, that going on. You know, and yeah. that, that basically slows it down right away, basically. And I think that is kind of an Eclipse problem a little bit because I found as soon as I work with, you know, semi-remote file systems, it is... Terribly slow. Eclipse is a platform, basically, and yeah, yeah that, that was one of the you know main main reasons why I made the switch. Um, yeah, the other thing what I wanted to say actually with you know shells and windows, what I did at the time was I used Sukwin, mm -hmm. which is basically a repository of Unix tools for Windows, and that gave me actually you know a proper shell. And then you can run Git and whatever other command line tools in in there, basically in the same way as yeah. you would run it on Linux or Unix or macOS. And that was really, really good. But I think a lot of people don't know that that exists, Sukwin. So, you know, if you... Yeah, Sukwin is very cool. Yeah, if you, you know, hate Windows command prompt, Sukwin is some sort of, at least a potential way out of that. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't explored Sukwin too much. Um, I've, seen, I've seen guys, you know mention it on Twitter or blogs or on Stack Overflow or whatever it is. And I've never used it, to be honest with you. Yeah, you should give it a try. It's actually, um, if you like the stuff that, you know, is possible in Git shell and, and those tools, Sukwin mm -hmm. gives you much, much more and in a much nicer way. Yeah, I'm looking at the website. It looks, uh, get that Linux feeling on Windows. So. <laughs> yeah, it's basically when the way how the installation works is a bit odd. Basically, you download a tiny file, and that's mm. that sets up like a repository on your machine, basically. And then you have to go 
into a tool that it installs and you pull all the basically Unix ports of software from that tool. So it doesn't give you a big installer right at the start. You have to go through like a two or three step process to get the stuff you want, really. I see. So yeah, okay. No, but so it's, it's like def- Mac. You buy you buy you buy the you buy the first piece of equipment for Mac, and you just keep buying and buying, and buying. Yeah, similar, kind of. Similar, the, the only right? difference is it's free for for Sequoia. <laughs> you have to pay for it. <laughs> cool. Um, while we are talking about Windows, um, as I said before, I was at TechEd yesterday and the day before yesterday. That was up in Auckland, and that was a quite interesting. Interesting trip. Have you guys played with um, Azure or you know developing apps for Windows no. 8 or something like that yet? Not even remotely. No, no reason to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you know what what Microsoft is doing with with their Azure platform platform is actually quite interesting and quite clever. You know they started as um, as a platform as a service really. Um, providing pretty much like environments where people could run their .NET apps in with different roles, like a web role or a worker role to run business logic, and it gave or it gives that gives people a way of um, just taking their you know local app from a server and distribute it quite easily in a cloud on if you wanna wanna run it on Windows or if you have to run it on Windows depending on what you're doing, and that is. That alone was quite good, I thought. But they basically pretty much have opened that up now. And it's becoming more an infrastructure as a service offering instead of just a platform as a service. So you can nowadays do a thing which is called a virtual machine role, which is essentially a VM, you know, as you would get on um, uh, on Amazon or on any other cloud offering, really. But the, the interesting thing is you get not just Windows operating systems, as I thought initially you would, like, you know, whatever, Windows 2008 server or Windows 2012 server now. They basically allow you to, you know, they provide you Linux um, images right away. You can run a variety of different Linux systems or you create your own image and run it in there, basically. And the administration system and the whole setup is really intuitive, I found. I found it when I when I started a trial of it like a few weeks ago. I found it much much easier to get into than Amazon Cloud, as really? as someone who has you know like not used that product before. Basically, quite quite interesting actually. And what they've now released um, a few days ago actually, and that is something I found particularly interesting is a platform offering called. Um, mobile services for Azure. And what that basically is, it gives you a very, very simple way to create backends for cloud apps, like mobile apps or even desktop apps or something, which allows you to store and retrieve data with a simple REST API. And then it's automatically clustered, it's automatically scalable across as many virtual machines as you want in different data centers, in different regions. And it pretty much comes quite out of the box. It's it's really, really interesting. But it runs Windows Server, doesn't it? Well, yeah, for that for the mobile services, it 
doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's transparent to you, right? You interact with a data storage at the end of the day and how they store that data, you don't really care at the end of the day. If that's stored on a Windows server or on, on a SQL server, you never lock into the machine that runs your mobile service, basically. So you only would... Um, you know, interact with that service via a REST API or via your admin console or, you know, whatever other tool you want to do, what you want to use. But the interesting thing then is it has a built-in notification platform. So if you build a mobile app or, you know, a Windows desktop app or something like that, it will automatically allow you to push messages from, from your cloud services to individual devices. And that is kind of really cool. Cool. You're not not as excited as I I thought you would be, but no. you're not really doing. A lot. I can't see me ever writing Windows mobile apps. <laughs> well, it's not just Windows Mobile, right? It's also Windows Eight for desktop, or like Windows yeah. Eight apps. Yeah. Basically. I don't see me writing apps for that either. <laughs> no, that's fine. You know that that's fair enough. But that gets me to sort of the next point, and that's you know, that's where it becomes maybe a bit more interesting for for um for from a web developer's point of view when you look at how they basically allow you to write apps um for windows 8 mobile and windows 8 desktop they basically give you two options either you do the whole .net thing which to be honest i have not really much clue of um and i'm not really intending to you know go much into that direction basically but they also allow you to write those apps with html and javascript so basically that you know allows you to write an app using the web technology and it basically runs as a native app on that phone or on um on a windows at desktop and that's quite of a compelling cool. compelling point basically to me you know it's quite easy to get into that and write apps that really look good because you can use all the you know nice things in html5 and css3 and you can use basically any existing JavaScript framework you want to build apps for Windows 8 desktop or for, you know, for that Metro UI with the tiles and all that stuff, basically. Yep. Oh, still not that much of excitement. I can hear it. What do you think of that, Chris? <laughs> I think it's interesting, but like Mark, I'm probably not that interested in building Windows-specific apps. Um, I just don't think they... They just don't interest me all that much. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Um, what I found when I looked at particularly the Windows 8 apps, app development model with HTML and JavaScript, it reminds me a lot of Flex in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, obviously, the markup is different, and obviously, you know, the language changes from ActionScript to JavaScript. And that's, you know, basically a transition you find with a lot of technologies nowadays. But what I thought is the development model windows 8 apps kind of have to follow or are supposed to follow is very very similar to what you would have done in flex so i think for flex developers if they want to get into that windows 8 app thing and app market that will be a very very easy transition for those guys like tremendously easy yeah that sounds interesting i mean the action script and JavaScript have, have always been kind of similar, right? So 
if there's, I think, I think guys are going to build apps for, for whatever they think they can produce the most, most uh, revenue from, you know, if, or unless it's their, unless they're doing work for a specific client that really wants a, uh, a Windows mobile app, or if they require something that's, that's for Windows 8 specifically, then, then they're going to develop for whatever they think they're going to get the most market share out of, you know? Yeah, I think so too. I mean, Microsoft is, well, has launched like an app store for Windows 8 and for Windows 8 phone when it finally comes out on, on actual devices. Um, I mean, we'll have to see how successful that's going to be in the first place, right? Um, because just just because Apple did it and is really successful and Google is Google copied it and is kind of successful with it, I'm, you know, it doesn't really necessarily mean that in the Windows world the same thing works. So... I don't know. I don't want to say I'm um, critical or not convinced yet, but you know, it's a different market, obviously. And Apple users and seem to be more willing to, I don't know, like um, go into a vendor app store and buy things through that than Windows users might be. But I might be totally wrong. I don't know. I think we'll see Microsoft stuff going more towards a, an app store anyway. I'd be pretty shocked if that didn't happen. Well, I mean, everyone is doing it, right? Sorry? Everyone is going into that direction at this yeah. stage, really. Uh, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. But yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, the other thought I had when I looked at it is, it looks really cool, but, you know, Microsoft has sort of a bit of a history of killing development technologies. I mean, in a similar way that Adobe has, I guess, with, you know, flex to a certain degree at least um yeah. you know silverlight was the the big big thing for quite a while at microsoft and then it's still there and they've released silverlight 5 but i don't know anyone who's actually doing silverlight development anymore nowadays it's pretty much in a similar in a similar situation like flashes you know it doesn't run on devices yeah on the web so it's for web content, it's getting more and more difficult to place it. Um, and they made a similar traumatic shift of like, yeah, we'll release new stuff for Silverlight, but really it's because we have to, from a corporate responsibility and corporate support point of view, more than, you know, because we think it's the right thing to do. And you see that in, you know, Windows 8 apps where Silverlight doesn't really play a big role anymore at all. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Silverlight. It's funny. <laughs> um, Chris, how do you find Flex going for for your work and your clients? You know, just just because of everything that's happened, I've kind of steered my clients out of Flex a little bit. Um, I still love Flex. I think it's great. And for certain situations, um, you know, if people are going to run on non-iOS devices, I think it's great. Um, I'm sad about, you know, that it's that it's that it's gone the way it's gone, but um, I still love Flex. But I think that I think that JavaScript is just sort of where it's at now. You know? Yeah, it, that's pretty much what what I feel as well. I mean, there's Flex offered well, still offers really a lot of really really good things. But you know, if you can't deploy it in the environment where you would need to deploy it, it's really it's really hard to recommend that. Okay, to favorite to favorite JavaScript framework. At the moment, mine or in or what I mean like or in general the world's 
most no, famous. yours. What, what is what is yours? Um, it depends. For dominant manipulation, I still use jQuery a lot. Yep. For structural um, setup, either Angular JS or things like Knockout JS. Chris, yeah, for me jQuery hands down. But um, I also like, uh, oddly enough, I think because of the, my exposure to it with CoreFusion is ext JS. I, I like that. Interesting. Uh, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a really nice you nice done nice done UI framework. And I think from a f again f you know being a Flex developer, it's quite easy to make a transition into ext.js, isn't it? Yes, it really is. Yeah. Yep, very much so. Yeah, that's exactly okay. my my experience. I um, you know, one of the guys at Sensha who own xjs is Ted Patrick, and he used to be part of the Flex team and he was a Flex evangelist at Adobe in, you know, one of his previous lives, basically. And when he um, when he joined Censure, and he's sort of the developer relations manager there or something, um, he put in a lot of effort to make Censure ext.js even more accessible and more usable for ex-Flex developers, basically. Ah, interesting. Yeah, because he knew that he knows the technology, and you know he knows um, where the market is going. Obviously, that's away from away from flex or away from plugin technologies. And um, yeah, they are they are putting a lot of effort in of positioning themselves as a JavaScript alternative to you know flex, basically. Okay. How about you, Mark? Um, yeah, I'll agree with the jQuery front for DOM manipulation, but yeah, definitely. Uh... Though I'm not incredibly experienced with the whole client side thing, uh, AngularJS is one of my favorites. I really enjoy working with that framework. And it's been really interesting to see that that sort of bubble up from relative in obscurity to uh, it seems to be more and more well-known, which is really good to see too. Yeah, I mean, Google is backing AngularJS, aren't they? Yeah, they're not doing it that loudly, though, which I think is kind of interesting, uh, both good and bad. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, a, it is a homegrown homegrown Google framework, which is cool. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very, I think it's really well nicely, nicely done. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other always interesting thing when it comes to UI frameworks for, 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 for JavaScript, it's obviously jQuery UI. And I think yep. a lot of people like and use that. Um, I don't know. Have you tried that, Chris? jQuery UI? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah of course. It, it, do you feel that it lags behind um, compared to compared to XJS in terms of functionality? Because that's pretty much what I what I what my impression is. XJS seems to have much more many more you know UI components, and you can easily build more complex components with it. Yeah, you can, and EXT just has has so many more features. Um, you know, I think I think some of the great stuff about like the jQuery UI is is uh, you know. Theming is very simple, um, you know, and and it's very very simple to implement. You just drop a, a folder in there, and, and you've got a, a custom CSS. It's very very simple to use and, and to change on the fly if you need to. Um, Ext is more polished though, I think, because they have they have more more um, more UI pieces, and I think that the JavaScript is written just a little differently, but it's. Um, it's still very simple to use and, and more powerful, in my opinion, for UI elements. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, 
are you doing any client side development at the moment, Mark? Uh, very rarely. <laughs> okay. So how did you get into happens, Angular? It happens every so often. I'm like, how oh, did you get I into Angular JS then? Um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, most of the time yeah, it's um, it's a combination of jQuery and Angular JS. Okay. Um, when I when I nip into some of my 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 team work, team's code, I go, well, oh, it's client side stuff. It's fancy. <laughs> but yeah, I'm still pretty much primarily back end data processing algorithmic work. That's pretty much my day in day out stuff. Getting back into solar, which is fun too. Mm, yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, JavaScript seems to become more and more the you know the the main yeah. the main language in in the web at the end of the day. And um, when I look at extensions of JavaScript or like you know nicer ways of writing JavaScript, look at stuff like CoffeeScript, for example. That takes away a lot of the pain points of JavaScript. I find. Mm. Then you have the other the additional step of having to compile it into JavaScript. But yeah. I mean, that's just what it is, basically. Yeah, it's kind of annoying. I, I have you looked closely at CoffeeScript? Um, I haven't built an application with CoffeeScript, like, you know, like a production application with it. I've mm. dabbled around a little bit with it, like, you know, tried little things and tried to, you know, script a page with CoffeeScript instead of writing JavaScript. And that yep. works quite well, actually. And, I mean, it has a few quirks. You know, one of them is you don't have a a ternary operator in CoffeeScript. That's annoying. Which really took me a while to realize because it just didn't work what I wanted to do, basically. And then you know, <laughs> yep. I found out that you can't do it. But, you know, frameworks like AngularJS don't have a ternary operator either. I don't know if you've realized that, but in AngularJS, you can't do that. How does the framework dictate what your syntax is for JavaScript? Oh, well, I mean, if, well, let then yeah, let me, let me, rephrase that if you write an angular js expression in a binding you can't you can't use, can't use a ternary operator, operator. Okay, yeah, yeah. that is more precisely expressed actually sure yeah. i mean if you write you know whatever plain javascript code you can do whatever you want yeah i'm with you now yeah so i mean it has a like like i said CoffeeScript has a little of those quirks and things you need to know yeah. Um, but that's pretty much it. I mean, if you know it, then you can just work around it, basically. But like I said, it makes it takes away a whole lot of the pain points I basically sometimes have with JavaScript as a language. Gotcha. That makes sense. Cool. So, Mark, do you want to tell us about your new toy, finally? My new toy? Yeah. Um, yes, I can tell you about my new toy. So, um, there are quite a few popular blogs around the web there's been people talking about uh, the IPS revolution, or uh, wait, let me see, if the IPS LCD revolution. So basically, there's a bunch of uh, Korean manufacturers, manufacturers who are taking essentially the 27-inch screens that would normally go into uh, most of the Apple hardware and taking just one level down from that um, in terms of quality. So the ones that don't go to Apple, the ones that get a little bit dropped off. Uh, and they've been reselling it at ridiculous, ridiculously low prices. So these are 27-inch, 2560 by 1440 screens. Um, and one of the blogs I'm looking at right now, Coding Horror by Jeff Abwood, uh, he's ended up buying three of them for, what was it, just over a grand, which is like, it's just a crazy, crazy price. Um, so I had the unfortunate circumstance of looking at this and staring at it for a few days and then finding what I needed to find on eBay to buy one through Korea and 
staring at that for a few days. And then finally I went, ah, screw it, it's too shiny, I have to buy one. Um, so I've done eBay, place an order. One of my 24-inch screens was dying, so I was like, oh, yeah, I could live with some blue lines and some yellow bits every so often, or I could get a new screen, what the hell, I'll get a new screen. Ordered it in, um, all pretty straightforward actually. There's some there's some risk there in terms of getting dead pixels or bright pixels and stuff. So I paid a little bit extra to get as much protection as I could. But they do say at a career, um, even if like we get one pixel or two pixels, you know, depending on where they are, it, that's like that's fine. Um, as of yet, I've yet to see one on my screen. Um, but yeah, there was a short delay because of some shortages. Um, but I ended up paying was it three hundred and eighty two dollars or something like that. That included shipping and handling, and now I've got a 2560 by 1440 27-inch screen sitting in front of me. Um, it's pretty good. Um, there's probably some pluses and minuses, definitely. Um, probably the most direct comparison you can make is, at the moment, Dell selling their brand-new IPS monitor, which is a 27-inch and 2560 by 1440 for $800. Um, the big differences, I think, are, one is this screen is about as bare-bones as you could possibly get. So the stand is pretty awful. Um, it just happens to be just the right size for me, right height for me, but you really can't adjust it at all. Um, there's no USB connections. There's no color correction other than brightness. Um, I'm actually oh, researching okay. right. I'm actually researching right now how to do color correction on on Ubuntu, uh, and I think I've actually found a solution, which is great. Because um, the white, I'm seeing the white. It's just got a blue tint to it, and it's compared to my other screens, it's driving me mental. Um, so. You know, in retrospect, I'm actually thinking back, you know, if knowing that I was just going to buy one, I probably would have lent towards the Dell because then I know, even though I'm paying probably almost double the price, I've got USB, you know, there's a built-in USB 3 hub. Um, actually, I think the Dell one has a USB 3. I know there's the very least there's a there's a, there's a USB hub hooked into it. Um, uh, what do I want? Electronics and accessories. I'll have a look at that. Um, you know, there's color correction built in, which is great. Um, all that sort of stuff now, you end up paying double. So I was thinking more, maybe maybe my, my, my overall feeling is if you're buying like two or three, the price is definitely worth it. There is no question, you know. Um, th at that low price, it's insane. But if you were buying one, I'd almost say if you can afford the Dell and you get the extra protection, you don't have to worry about, you know, blank pixels. It's just because, you know, it's in Korea, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, if something goes wrong, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, that might be a better a better option overall. Um, but look for for how much it cost and how easy it was to get shipped over. Um, I can't really complain too much. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, if I can fix these color correction issues, which I think I can do actually. Um, definitely, you can on Windows. There's a on the, the Overclock.net. There's all sorts of tooling for doing that. Um, yeah, it's been it's pretty nice. But look at, at at you know for pure coding, if you don't really care about that sort of color stuff, it's driving me a little bit nuts. Um, it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous screen. It's a great resolution. It's a huge amount of real estate. Um, and now I'm gonna have what have I got? Three, possibly four, really large monitors sometime soon. So yeah, it's pretty good. I like having lots of monitors. Yeah, cool. How many monitors do you have? I have um, one Apple Cinema display, and that's Is it connected. Just one screen. Yeah, that's connected to my MacBook Pro. So I've got two basically screens. two screens, yeah. And the the cinema display is essentially um, 2560 times 1440. But, you know, like two years ago, I paid probably three times the price you paid for yours now. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you know, it has a shiny, it has a shiny, nice case, and it has a nice stand, and it has a USB hub plugged in, built in, and it also has a shiny Apple logo printed on it. So you know, what can I complain? Oh, yeah, well, if it has a shiny Apple logo on it, well, yeah. that makes all the difference. But how about yeah, you? Kinda... How about you, Chris? How many? Yeah, you said you had a few screens. Yeah, I got a few screens. I've got uh, I've got two 23 inch Samsungs. Uh, one I turned vertically for writing code. It just it works out really nice that way. So you then, write code on the vertical. See, I have one that's turned vertical, but I use that just for documentation. Oh, well, you, so you write documentation. There's the there's the difference. No, no, I, I have my <laughs> over on my right. I have the vertical one, and that is um, that's for the documentation for the code I'm writing on the horizontal. Oh, I see. Okay. And yeah, you, you like oh, it? You like it on the vertical? So I like the vertical that's orientation. Yeah, and and I I turn the the line wrap on so that. So that everything fits just neatly, you know. I've got the formatting all down, so that so okay. Control Shift F and, and everything formats nicely within the boundaries that I specified, right? And and writing code with the vertical screen with the vertical screen is nice, especially for writing a lot of lines of code. Um, and then I use the other screens uh, for for uh, previewing, and then the other one for the database, generally speaking. Okay. Yeah, I think it has become quite standard that people have multiple screens, right? I mean, even if you go into a random random office nowadays, like, a, I don't know, large organizations, you'll find lots of people having at least two screens next to each other. So you yeah. wonder you wonder how we ever survived with, like, you know, one monitor back then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was getting tired of hitting Alt-Tab all the time and always tabbing to the wrong wrong window and all that stuff. So it was, it's just nice to have have everything separated into different screens so you don't have to do that. Yeah, yeah I do a, I use I use workspaces a lot. Um, being a being a Linux user and I think you have similar things on Mac because you know it's it from Linux. But um, yeah I can't I can't live without that. I have nine workspaces on two screens and then the other two computers are actual two different computers using Synergy so they rotate as well and yeah it's all yeah, alt tabbing sucks. Yeah, I, I basically have four workspaces set up on my Mac, but I mean, there are you know that's the maximum you can do with the built-in with the built-in operating system. But there are oh, yes, yeah, but the, you, there are tools you can just install to you know extend that and create more if you want to. Cool. So we talked about Mark's new toy. Yep. Did you want to post the link to your new toy? In, in I've posted a link to a couple of articles. Um, ah, okay. So you can you can find it. It's on eBay. It's very easy to find. Yeah, maybe you should you know should ask for a commission if you yeah. actually advertise it so nicely and you know help them to sell more. <laughs> sure, why not? Have a little affiliate code with a with an order link or something like that. Yeah, why not? Cool. So um, we're pretty much at what towards the end. Um, for today, um, so we should probably mention that the early bird discount for CF Objective ANZ is about to finish in a week or so. Actually, uh, in a week, yes, in a week of today. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you want to get a ticket for the early bird price or a ticket to the, one of the workshops for the early bird price, you have to book by next Friday, I think. Yes. So we should people should get on board with that, and don't forget that we've got workshops as well. So lots of good stuff. Yeah. Will there be an extension to the early bird period, Mark? Nope. 
No. No extensions. So we should you should make maybe say that again. There are no extensions. Okay. So if you want to book the early bird ticket, you have to do it by Friday next week. Yeah. Well, Friday. Maybe we should actually say Friday the fourteenth of September because whoever knows when this podcast actually is being That's listened true. to That's or true. you know downloaded. And, and Australian time. Australian time. So that is Thursday for U.S. people, and yep. yeah, potentially Saturday for New Zealanders. <laughs> Ooh, there's a bad background noise from somebody. Yeah, I think that's actually Chris somewhere. It's or... probably me. Yeah, we'll get that sorted in a second. Cool. So that was the um, was pimping CF objective. Um, if you want to see and listen to cool people like Chris coming down to the conference and presenting on interesting topics, make sure you book your ticket very, very soon. So what else is um, worth mentioning, Mark? We are going away quite soon, aren't we? In two weeks. Yeah, we're going to be at the Strange Loop conference in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, me too. That should be really cool. The only thing bad I can say about Strange Loop is that there's too much stuff on that's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, some conferences have that problem, basically. It's five tracks over two days. And over each session, it's like you have to choose between, you know, the guy who wrote Closure and, and somebody who's, you know, doing cool stuff on Redis. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> you choose. Yeah, life is hard. What but the good thing do? is they record everything, which is great. Yeah. Do they make that available just for attendees or for everyone yep, later on? Everyone. Everyone. Uh, you can actually get um, search for Strange Loop on GitHub. Uh, actually, I might provide the link in the show notes. Um, there's a, there's a link on GitHub where they actually have all the PDFs of all the last year's everyone's talk? presentation slides, oh, okay. and they also link to InfoQ, where who has a has an actual really nice little uh, it works not actually it works pretty well they have the video displaying and then they also have the slideshow that flicks forward mm, yeah um automatically which is kind of cool uh and most of the time it works pretty well okay um, i think i've only watched one there was a there was a, a presentation on vim and i think he had he said he had over 300 slides and he was like i have all these slides so that i can answer all the questions that people have not necessarily show them all and i don't think it handled that particularly well but generally it, it seems to be pretty good mm, okay yeah, that should be interesting. So we'll both be in the US and we should do a podcast from there, maybe. We could do. You fly in on the 21st, don't you? Yes, I'll be there a day earlier than you. Yeah, you will. Okay. So yeah, that's the next big thing. And we might, I don't know, depending on how timing goes and what we're going to do, maybe we do another podcast before. Let's see how we, we feel. Actually. Yeah, or there, depending on what happens. Cool. So if um, to wrap this up, if people want to get in touch with you, Chris. How could people get hold of you? Uh, best way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. It's at Chris Corsmo. That's K-R-I-S-K-O-R-S-M-O. Or uh, just through email, chriscorsmo at gmail.com. Okay. And how about you, Mark? Uh, Twitter probably is the easiest. Neurotic, because I'm a little bit crazy. Or my blog, compoundtheory.com. Definitely the way to reach me. Cool. And for myself, Twitter, Agent K, or my blog, blogandblack.de, which has recently been updated and revived and lots of new content. <laughs> cool. Cool. Alrighty. So thanks a lot, Chris, for joining us today. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was good fun, basically. And um, have a good flight, whatever your next um, next destination is, because I know you're in a hotel room at the moment, basically. 
That's right. Yeah. Is it going to be a long one or a short one, your next yeah. flight? Uh, tomorrow I go to Puerto Vallarta and back. And then, uh, so I'll be flying for the next three days. Ah, all right, cool. So have fun with that and, you know, safe trips and everything. And um, we'll talk to you soon. And you guys out there might hear from us soon. Brilliant. See you later. See, See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>